0: Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 243, and I'm your host, Ryan Tansom. We talk a lot on this show about knowing what you want and why and doing whatever it takes to accomplish your goals, being intentional with purpose, and today's guest could potentially be one of the best examples of someone who is living proof that having a vision and being relentlessly intentional with your actions and strategies can result in you accomplishing all the goals you set out to hit, no matter how big, and with today's guest, even against all odds that are stacked against you. Today on the show, we have Shelly Archenbau. Shelly is one of Silicon Valley's first female African-American CEOs. She formerly was an executive at IBM and the CMO of two public companies. Shelly was recruited to be the CEO of a then-struggling Silicon Valley startup, which is now MetricStream. A recognized global leader in governance, risk, and compliance software solutions, Shelley built the company into a global market leader with over 1,200 employees serving customers across the entire world. Under her leadership, MetricStream was recognized for growth and innovation over the years and was named in the top 10 of the Deloitte Technology Fast 50. Shelley currently serves as a Fortune 500 board member and holds board seats at Verizon, Nordstrom, along with a few others. She recently launched her book, Unapologetically Ambitious Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. Her book was featured as one of the best business books in 2020 by Fortune, and she's received endorsements from luminaries like John Thompson, the chairman of Microsoft, Reid Hoffman, the co founder of LinkedIn, and Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook. As I was reading Shelley's book, I honestly had to have bookmarked a hundred different points in her book where she talked about how knowing what she wanted and having that plan to get there allowed her to overcome the insane obstacles that she's run into in her life, accomplish dreams that most of us wouldn't even think to even dream because they seem too out of reach. And Shelly just shares this constant story of how having that big dream, having the plan, and being able to pivot and swerve, and deal with life's challenges as they come is crucial if you want to accomplish the dreams that you set out to accomplish. One of the great themes of this interview that I really enjoy that I hope you take away is how everybody has their own unique circumstances. Shelly likes to call that our baggage. And we all have a backpack full of baggage and full of life circumstances that bring us challenges. And Shelly's interview and book are resources to help you Stay focused on that dream and that vision while keeping the passion and motivation you have to accomplish that dream and deal with the challenges that come at you. Thanks for tuning in and I really hope you enjoy this interview with Shelly. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying growing and selling companies learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes shelly how are you
1: i'm doing great
0: i was just saying that i just got uh, done wrapping up your book I'm, i'm so excited for this and uh you know, I, I normally end my interviews by asking this one question, but I'm going to start with it at the beginning because I think that the entire episode is going to fall from this. So I normally ask everybody at the end, what does intentional mean for you? And I think it's, <laughs> uh, you're smiling. I think it's very ap- applicable to say at the beginning, let's talk about what does the word intentional mean for you?
1: Intentional for me is just a way of life. I am intentional and I try to be intentional in everything I do.
0: What does it actually mean to you then?
1: Oh, so it means looking at what is the objective. And so when I do something, understanding how it fits within the overall objective, whether that's a goal or an impact or something I'm trying to create, you know, it's why am I doing this? And so let's be intentional about what it is that we're doing. Because when you're intentional, each step of the way, it increases, for me anyway, it increases my ability to achieve my goals and aspirations. I'm a big believer in putting a plan in place and say, okay, what's what's the goal? What is it I'm trying to do? And I ask myself, what do what has to be true for me to actually achieve it? Which means doing some research, right? Got to understand what has to be true, right? Got to do the research, understand, et cetera. So once I've got the research done, then I ask myself, so now how do I make it true, right? So what's the goal? What has to be true? And then how do I make it true? And the how do I make it true is the plan. And then I try to make every decision along the way consistent with the plan. And that's what a lot of people don't do. You know, a lot of people set goals, right? Objectives here. I want to do this. I want to do that. And some actually take the time to say, okay, let me lay out a plan. But I find that very few people make decisions every day consistent with their plan. And to me, that's where the real, real power lies. That's where you really unlock the ability to increase your odds.
0: Honestly, how you just described that is like, it's taken me seven years to kind of figure out that as we rebranded to this word intentional, what you just described, I found is like what was lacking. It's this context that provides clarity. Cause like how you're making decisions along the way, if you don't have a guiding, you know, goal, like every decision just kind of haphazard. But so before we dive into all of this stuff. Like, why don't you just kind of walk the listeners through your journey, <clears throat> the book, what like what you, what kind of what your, what stage of life you're in, and kind of the the milestones that got you here, and then we can dive into the main topics.
1: Oh, uh, certainly. So, by way of background, you know, I grew up elementary school in the '60s, and the '60s was a very racially charged time. My family moved around a lot. My father didn't have a college degree, and so he took every opportunity to increase his ability to earn and support his family. So I, I lived in seven different states before I was in high school. Um, and one of the places we ended up going uh, first was uh, when I was in like the first grade. We moved to a community that was all white. I didn't have any black classmates or anything. And because of the racially charged situations, everybody made it very clear that they didn't expect much from me, didn't really want me there. So I learned very early in life that the odds weren't in my favor. If I just did what everybody else did, I wasn't going to get very much. So that was really a key premise for me becoming intentional because I had to figure out, okay, if I actually want something, I've got to figure out how to make it happen because nobody's going to help me here. Mm -hmm. And that was my overall focus. So Fast forward, I'm now in high school, I have a conversation with a guidance counselor who says, you know, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm going to college and I want to get a job, "Well, what do you want to do in your job? I'm like, I don't know. I just want to make enough money to keep my thermostat at 72 degrees <laughs> and I want to be able to go to restaurants and travel. Um, and she said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, oh, clubs, organizations, you know, I'm in a lot and I like to run them and the whole bit." And she said, well, you know, clubs and organizations kind of like business. So if you like to run clubs, you'll probably like running a business. Oh, said, okay, looked around. The people who run businesses were called CEOs. Said, done, I'm going to be a CEO. Did I know what that meant? No, I didn't. But if it was like running a club. I like that. So it's good enough. I just needed a goal. So now that was my goal. So I spent my entire career, if you will, focused on that goal. So I put plans in place. I went to Wharton because it was the best business school. I joined IBM because I wanted to be in tech, growing industry. IBM was a leader in tech. I said, great, I'm going to go be CEO of IBM. (laughs) I started out in sales because that's where every CEO started out in in, in IBM. I'd done my homework, right? What has to be true? And then I rose to the ranks. And in 14 years, I'd done really well, running multi-billion dollar divisions. My boss worked for the CEO, Lou Gerstner. So I was two steps away. There wasn't anyone who looked like me that was higher than me in the company, but it wasn't clear that they were really going to give me a chance to compete for the CEO slot. So I made the really hard decision to leave IBM and work my way to Silicon Valley, where after holding two chief marketing officer, EVP of sales jobs at public companies, I finally got my chance to be CEO. And every decision I made along the way, the types of jobs I took, the kinds of skills I built, were all lining me up to one day be able to take over the mantle of being CEO of a company. And I did. And I ended up being CEO for 15 years, turning a very broken company into a market leader in governance, risk, and compliance. And uh, two years back or so, I passed the baton to the CEO. And now I am in my what I call my phase two. I serve on boards, advise companies, I do some coaching, and I'm Focused on making an impact. I want to impact and inspire the next generation of professionals so they can improve their odds to achieve what they want out of life.
0: I thank you so much for the background, Shelly. And I think what's important, and I want you to, um, we're going to talk about your book in a, in a couple of seconds, is I want to explain why this is so important to me. When I got done reading your book, is that I am, I've gotten really sick of over the last five, 10 years of us idolizing people that destroy their lives to have this monumental success that we, right? And it's like, what you did in your book is you provided context of your decision making, which I absolutely valued, Shelly, because it was like, you weren't like doing and, you know, creating havoc all over the place. You were cap- capable of holding all these things true together while trying to hit your goal at the same time. So give us the title of your book and what that means. And, and then we can dr- jump right into it.
1: Sure. So unapologetically ambitious, take risks, break barriers, and create success on your own terms. And that whole piece, create success on your own terms. Well, to me, I wanted a life. So yes, I wanted to be CEO, but I had some other things I wanted too. I would like to be married if that would work. I wanted to have kids, right? I want, There were a number of things I wanted. So I wanted a life. And the reason for the title of the book, and by the way, I had the whole thing written and still had no title. (laughs) I really struggled over the title. I knew I wanted ambition in it. Something about ambition because I was sick and tired of especially women and people of color, you know, being told things like, oh, you're ambitious and it's not meant as a compliment, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then I'm like, I can't just call it ambition. So what am I going to call it? And I was in a conversation with friends, all women and we're talking about how much women apologize. And I said, you know, I believe women are raised from birth to apologize (laughs) because 5%, maybe 10% of the the times we apologize, we actually did something wrong. The other 90, 95% of the time, we're just trying to make the rest of the world feel better. Mm -hmm. We do it to smooth feathers, ease tensions, to show we care. We, We use, I'm sorry, like salt, right? Just makes everything a little better. Well, we got to stop doing that. Because when the more we say, I'm sorry, people think we really are sorry, right? So we really aren't capable. It is all our fault. <laughs> so stop it. And that's when I went, you know, that's it. That's it. Unapologetically ambitious. Everyone, everyone has the right to be ambitious and no one should have to apologize for it.
0: And I, it's super good foundation. And I think what's interesting is that ambition of that goal and the energy that you're funneling towards that goal, it's really hard to make decisions. There was a point in the book you were talking about when you you were realizing that your path upwards was not going to maybe get you to that CEO job. And so you had to start going out, even though you're potentially bleeding blue. If you don't have that big goal, how are you ever going to make that decision? So maybe talk a little bit about your journey with having that goal and how that decision-making ability was either easy or hard along the way because you had that focus?
1: Oh gosh, it was both, you know, so having a, having a framework of what I was trying to achieve gave me the rubric for making decisions. You know, people come to me all the time and will say, Shelly, I'm not sure what I should do. I have this option or that option or whatever, blah, blah, blah. What do you think I should do? And I'll say, well, what are you trying to do? You know, what's, what's your goal? Where are you heading? And the answer is, I'm not sure. Then I give them the really harsh answer, which is in that case, it doesn't matter. So it doesn't true. matter which job you take. And and they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, it doesn't because unless you have something that you are actually heading towards or working towards a job is a job is a job. You can do a job, right? So <laughs> what having that goal, right? And the plan does is it gives you the framework so that you can better optimize your choices and decisions so that you are able to improve your odds to achieve the success that you are trying to create for yourself. So, you know, that, that rubric and that plan wasn't just career. Yes. CEO. But I also said, I wanted to be a mother. And I also said, Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a wife. I wanted a long-term partnership. With my husband. I I didn't want a marriage that might last, might not last. No, no, I wanted a long term relationship. So that was my goal. So those three things were in the rubric. And therefore, every decision I made, I tried to use those three elements, right, to help me make the best decisions for the outcomes that I was trying to achieve.
0: I love that context that you just gave, Shelly, because it was a three-dimensional goal. And the reason I'm bringing this up because, you know, with a lot of entrepreneurs, it's just a revenue goal or a funding goal. And the, re- the, the problem that I've always had as, an, as someone that wants to look for mentors and everything like that and the people that have been on the show is like, I've always said, Shelly, I'm like, well, if I decided to get rid of my family, work all 168 hours a week, then maybe I could obtain that. But like, I'm not that I don't have the luxury and I don't want that. So then there was like, how do you judge your success? To, so there's all these very linear or very siloed goals that people are marching towards. And when I got the cut, when I went through your book, I was like, you had the full context of different values that I also valued. So I could see how you made the decisions to get there and what the pros and cons and the and the, the, the takeaways or the the things you were giving up or, or taking in order to get there, And and maybe talk a little bit more about that three-dimensional goal and how, are you following kind of what I'm saying here? Because it just is so. You
1: know, so, I mean, it started out early. And I say early, I'm I'm a planner. So I've been planning for a very long time. So gosh, when you talk about how to make those different trade-offs. So here I am, gosh, even right in the beginning. So I'm now married. um, I'm in sales with IBM. I'm having my baby, all right? And legally, you can take six weeks off. You can take more time off than that, but legally you get six weeks off. Well, I decide I'm only going to take five. What? All right now, why did I do that? Well, in the context, I'm in sales. The biggest and I'm in retail. The re, biggest retail conference of the year only happens once a year. Happens five weeks after my baby's born, and that is the best time to make relationships with senior executives, because that's who shows up to these conferences of clients and customers. And mm-hmm. I'm like, if I miss that, I kind of miss a year's worth of relationship building. And sales is all about relationship building. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, I shouldn't miss that. So was that a hard decision? It was. I mean, I was breastfeeding. So it was like cold turkey. <laughs> and only, only probably half the people on this call will know what, how hard that is and how painful that is. And I'm leaving my child right? So soon. I mean, all, all those things. But was it the right holistic decision? It was. It was the right decision. Um, I commuted se- several times, but the longest commute was when we were living in Dallas, Texas. I decided I need the opportunity in Silicon Valley. My daughter's in high school, son's in middle school. But we promised my daughter that when she got to high school, because I moved around a lot, that it was really going to be her choice. And she said, you know, mom, I really want to stay and graduate from this school. And I said, okay, I really want to go to Silicon Valley and take this job because it's going to set me up for the CEO job that I want. So you know what? I commuted for three years. Is that an easy thing to do? No. It's hard on everybody, on me, on the kids, on Scotty. Um, but we collectively did it. And by the way, it was a choice. It was not a sacrifice. Can I talk for a minute about sacrifice, Right? I was
0: just going to say, go right into that. I love it. I love this part.
1: Okay, so- Many people will ask me, oh, Shelly, you know, all you've done, what, you know, you must have had to make some hard sacrifices. You know, how many sacrifices did you make? And honestly, what I'll tell them is not a single one. I made no sacrifices. I made lots of hard decisions, lots of hard trade-offs, but no sacrifice. And let me explain why I use that language. A sacrifice to me is something that you do completely for someone else, right? I'm sacrificing for you. All right. Well, when you do that, a couple things happen. One, you give up your power. You're no longer in control. You're doing something completely for someone else. Number two, you put so much pressure on that person that you are, quote, sacrificing for that they cannot possibly live up to it. They cannot possibly be grateful enough or thankful enough or because, you know, look at all that I've done for you. Right. And, So that whole piece, imagine, Mm -hmm. imagine that whole time I commuted for three years. If I went around telling people, including, you know, my daughter, oh, I'm doing this for you, right? I'm doing this for you so you can stay in school. Well, how is she going to feel? Guilty. Mom's on a plane. She's doing this, whatever. She's going to feel guilty. Does that add stress and pressure? Absolutely. Is that fair? No. And then she's going to feel like somehow she owes me well you again you can never bring that balance together so it just creates a wrong dynamic from the start so no no do not make
0: sacrifices tell the story Me? about the pot, the Which pie that, the, tell the pie story because oh, uh, i think because sure. I'm, I'm assuming that's part of the root of this because yeah. i think that does a really good job highlighting what you what you're talking about here
1: absolutely so i was a teenager um, and you know in our household we all had jobs so it's my turn to do the dishes and i'm cleaning up the dishes and i'm washing this pie plate now you have to understand my mother the hardest working person, flat out, period, that I knew. Um, She was a stay-at-home mom, but we had homemade dinner, homemade dessert every night. She made our clothes, because it was a whole lot less money to do that than to buy. Um, She supported everything, took care of the household, paid all the bills, I mean, mom did everything. So here I am watching this pie plate, and I'm thinking, you know, mom made the pie. And when she made it, it was time for dessert, cut it up and then everybody reaches for the biggest piece of pie, right? And mom gets the last piece, which of course is the smallest piece. And I'm sitting here watching this pie plate. And I went out and talked to my mom. I said, you know, mom, I've decided I am not having kids. (laughs) But she's like, what? What, what, Wait a minute, sit down. What are are you talking about, Shelly? And I said, mom, I am not willing to work as hard as you work and end up with the smallest piece of pie. And she said, Shelly, I don't care about that pie. She said, I have everything that I care about. So you decide what you care about and go after that. And the rest of it doesn't matter. Okay. So that really helped me frame my view around this notion of making choices and trade-offs. So she decided she'd need the biggest piece of pie. She got everything she wanted. And oh, by the way, in this household where we had no money and where things were all tight and the whole bit, my mother ended up buying a horse, a horse. I was like, we have money for a horse. But the key is she was making the trade-off. She sewed all of our clothes. And let me tell you, I say sew clothes. Mom sewed every night. We went to bed with the sewing machine running because four kids and you're growing all the time. So you always need new clothes. But she was doing that because she was also saving some money. She was saving money so that one day she could have her dream which was to
0: own a horse. It's such a great story. And, it, and, it, and it's about when you have that context, you understand how someone came to that conclusion. Um, speak a little bit about your definitions of balance versus integration. Yeah, you're talking about work-life balance. <laughs> so full- No, not you know, software.
1: <laughs> that, exactly. So I cannot stand the term work-life balance. And let me just explain why. What is a balance? A balance is a fixed structure, right? It's static, even on both sides at all times. I don't know about you, Ryan, my life is not static. (laughs) My life is ups and downs and curves. I mean, come on, all of 2020, right? It was crazy. And suddenly, suddenly I'm gonna be like judged on whether or not I'm holding my life in balance through all these ups and downs and curves. I mean, it's ridiculous. We have enough things to feel guilty about. I don't need another measure on balance, right? To make me feel guilty. No, no, no. I don't believe in work-life balance. I believe in work-life integration. I am one person with one head. And therefore I take my professional priorities. I take my personal priorities. I put them together and I prioritize ruthlessly so that I get done what needs to get done. And what that typically means is there's going to be some things that don't get done or I have to find somebody else to do them and that's okay. That's okay. So work integration to me also means trying to do multiple things at once because I don't have time. So many times I do one-on-ones when I was running my company, walking. Why walking? I need some exercise. So if I didn't have to see a presentation or view spreadsheets or whatever, it's like, okay, let's walk and talk. I still do walks and talks to this day. Um, Going to an event or when we could, right? Concert, whatever. Invite a whole bunch of friends to go. You're going anyway. And then it gives you a chance to see other people. So integrate your life in a way in which it's one life where you are getting done what needs to get done across the spectrum.
0: Well, there was something years and years ago that, I mean, someone looked at me and said, the great equalizers, we all have 168 hours a week. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) yeah. That's it. Like, uh, there was this woman on my show, Shelly, I got to introduce you to her, Gail Golden. She wrote a book called uh, "Curating Your Life," and she her analogy was like the time is like an art exhibit. You can't put everything in there, and what's the theme of right now? It was a beautiful way of describing this. And uh, I'm curious, and you, as you're as you're integrating all the different priorities based on your goals, how like was there, you know easy, hard, or what you know what resources did you use to say no? to other Um, things?
1: You know, saying no has always been my biggest challenge. Always, 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 always. Um, because I am, I'm, I'm a giver. I like to help people. And therefore early on, I learned a really hard lesson and thank God it was early on. So I was in my late twenties. I now had, I was married, had two kids. I was working for IBM. I'd been promoted a couple of times. I just got my first nonprofit board seat, right? Outside looking in, hey, I'm on top of the world, right? I am tracking in my own head, in my own body. I'm a mess. I'm absolutely a mess. I'm, I feel depressed. I have a tough time getting out of bed. I'm like, is this what it's going to be like? Because this is, if this is what it means to actually go after all this stuff, then I, I don't know that I can do it. Fortunately, I went to go see a psychologist because I'm like, something is wrong. I don't know what's wrong, but something is wrong. And through those sessions, I learned that I was taking care of everybody else except me. I was taking care of my kids and my husband. I was giving 100% of myself away to the community, to the neighbors, right? To the nonprofit, everything. And that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So I learned that in my late 20s. And I learned what I need to do for self-care. And then I've never had that problem since. Now, do I still have trouble saying no? I do. But here are the questions I ask myself. And maybe this might help others. When people come to me for something, the first question I ask myself is, am I the best person to do this? Not can I do it, but am I actually the best person to do it? And if I'm not the best person to do it at the time, in the place, in the moment, et cetera, Then I try to think of who is. So I try not to just say, no, go away. All right. But I try to say, you know, I'm not the best person for this, but you know what? So-and-so is. Want an introduction? Right. Can I help? Whatever. So I try to find a different way to do it. If I don't have time to do something I then try to think of, all right, who else? Where else can I point somebody? And when I don't have anything, then I'll just say, no, I can't be helpful. But that is the last straw. I try to say no and be helpful first.
0: Super helpful. And I think, you know, what do you see in other people that you've encountered throughout your journey in life that were, if they don't have those really clear goals, not just the career goals, but the family goals, the the three-dimensional goals, how they kind of just flounder around in this space, because how can you make decisions if you don't, have that. Like, I mean, maybe kind of give us some stories when you see things off the track. <laughs> or, uh...
1: Yeah, you know, um I think some statistics just show that things off the track. You know, um marriages, you have a very high divorce rate. One of the things that I think is missing in a lot of relationships, whether it's marriage or not, is having a common long-term vision. You know, if you want it to actually go on for a long time, then you ought to have a common view for what you expect that to be. And I think what happens to a lot of relationships is expectations change. And what I think the future ought to be is not what you think the future ought to be. And next thing you know, you can't figure out how to get this thing together. And right. Um, You see it with people who burn out, right. That don't find the help. Like I found to learn. All right. What is it that I, that I need to do? And a lot of people do suffer from burnout Right and depression, etc. And it's important to get help along the way. Life is hard, you know. People don't tell people that, Ryan. I tried to tell people in the book because normally I read books and people are like, "Oh, I did A, B, C, had a little hurdle, jumped over it, and boom!" Right? Yeah.
0: Life. Download, download a lead magnet, fill out a PDF, and you've got a beautiful life.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was just like, well, "Where do they live?" All right. I mean, no, life is hard. People just don't tell you. So given life is hard, you need help. We all need help. I've needed a lot of help. So take help and get help along the way because this is just too hard to deal with all by yourself.
0: Well, and I think you, you, you even highlight that example too when you talk about the baggage that, or the luggage. I can't remember if it was a backpack. Or backpack, the, yeah, there a, you backpack. Go. <laughs> a and, backpack. And everybody's got their own and realizing that and how they're solving for their own problems is different of how they're prioritizing everything. Like, maybe describe a little about a little bit about your backpack because I think it, there's even though there's a lot of challenges that you went through given the time that you grew up and your background that is more challenging than some others that have been maybe listening to this. But I think that some of the commonalities of, of imposter syndrome. There are other people who had different challenges, the different backpack that everybody's got a backpack. It's just different. Maybe kind of walk us through the example and what yours was. Oh, sure.
1: So. Yeah. The, and the analogy that Ryan's pointing to is in the book. I talk about the fact that everybody has an invisible backpack. And in that backpack is everything that has happened to you, that you've experienced, tragedies, um, situations, right? how you're treated, all, all those things, insecurities, all that is in the backpack. And therefore, when we all show up, we show up with backpacks of different weight, different size, you know, et cetera. And people can't see it but it's there. So what do I have in my backpack? Well, my dad didn't have a college degree. I was a black girl in the U S growing up. And therefore it was very clear that there weren't many expectations for me. People didn't think I should be smart. People didn't think I should be all those things. So all those insecurities in the backpack, um, imposter syndrome, big time in the backpack. You know, we've had some different health situations and tragedies um, in my life those right in the backpack so all of those kind of elements are in backpack and you know people have different things some people you know come from a different country and trying to learn new language well you know what all that's in the backpack i mean trust me there's all kinds of things in these backpacks but a backpack no matter how heavy it is it does not have to stop you you can still move forward you may need more help and that's okay but you can still move forward. And by the way, if you're strategic about what you're doing versus just moving along, most people just move along. So if you are strategic, you can actually take some shortcuts. So even though you're carrying that heavy backpack, you can get there faster. So all of those things are, are important to understand. Don't let that backpack define you. It does not define you.
0: Well, and, and I think what's so interesting about that backpack analogy is if you don't have that big vision, How do you use that backpack and the different things that you're bringing along with you in the choices that you're making? And I I think what's when you think about your challenges as you all the all of the things in your backpack, I think a lot of people have a big like whether it's the imposter syndrome or the guilt of even starting to plan that like there's this like I'm not even allowed to dream like that to build the plan because like once you get the plan down then you then you got to do your research like you're talking about so maybe whether it was in your your journey or other people that you've seen sitting down and overcoming those narratives that you're telling yourself why you can't dream like that like how did you go about Um, doing that or
1: yeah it's really important to have people around you that are building you up there is way too much in this world that is trying to tear us down, telling us how we are not good enough. We're not, name it. You're not young enough. You're not technical enough. You're not, you know, whatever, pretty enough. You're not, you know, clean enough. You don't have a, your kids aren't there. I mean, whatever it is, right? We're always being judged on things. So all the world is constantly telling us all the ways in which we are, quote, not perfect, not that perfect exists. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's no wonder. So wonder, there. People are walking around thinking I can't do anything. All right. So what do we need? We need a counter narrative. We need people around us who are actually building us up. I call those people cheerleaders and cheerleaders have played a huge role in my life. It's how I overcame so many of the issues and so many of the things that were in my backpack where people around me telling me, oh yeah, you can do it, Shelly. Absolutely. You can do it. We believe in you, right? We, I mean, we need that. That's why I call them Cheerleaders. Because oh, it literally is cheerleaders. Like, yes, Ryan, you got this. Go, man, you know? Shelly, come on. It's, it's the cheerleaders. Just like on in a game day, it's like, rah, rah, go, go. We're here for you, right? Psych you up. Get you going. We need those cheerleaders because life is hard. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have people out there supporting us and egging us and pushing us forward and letting us know we can do it, we're going to live in our own heads. And we're going to think we actually can't. So get cheerleaders.
0: What is your thoughts? Uh, I want to tell you a quick kind of uh, example of how to start that late in someone's life stages. And and because so here's a couple of the, uh, some background on this. So on the show, five years into this, Shelly, and the amount of entrepreneurs that have been on the show that have made so much money or like all the worldly success you could think of. And they didn't do a lot of stuff you're talking about. So they're still miserable is. The the imposter syndrome, you know, they everybody's baggage is different. Like you said, their backpack is filled with different things. But some of the themes that I've noticed, whether it was the the entrepreneur was not good at school, dyslexic, or came from a weird background, that you know, all the you know, the things push them down. So they get they they fake it till they make it. You know, how many times we heard that? I had Tom Herman on the show who wrote wrote the alter ego effect. He's got a whole different like philosophy on how to handle this. Is you know entrepreneurs trap themselves into pretending that bag is, well, they make sure it's invisible to everybody, right? So they don't tell everybody what they want. So they're, not, they're hiding their baggage. So they don't ask for help. They don't ask for cheerleaders. And the amount of weight that that backpack just becomes heavier for themselves. So how do you shift that in the middle of your, of the journey? Because I think it's just so, it's make or break it.
1: Mm, you know, it's honestly, honestly, it's hard. So first of all, first thing is always awareness, right? It's realizing that y- you can, um, and whether it's people around you or whether you go get help, by the way, I'm a big believer. And there's a reason why there's actually a profession of psychologists, <laughs> all right? There is a
0: There's enough reason. of us that need them. <laughs>
1: yeah. So use them, use them. And by the way, most insurance covers some of it. So, I mean, use it. It's as entrepreneurs know, you want to use every resource. All right, use every resource. Well, guess what? That is actually a resource. So, if you're not able to break through it on your own, go get some help. So, that's one. Uh, two is everyone. I firmly believe that you can achieve whatever it is you want to achieve if you're willing to do the work, make the trade offs, take help, right? All, all of those all of those things at some point doesn't mean you can do everything all at the same time right but if you've actually done the research to figure out okay it's reasonable then you can absolutely do it so have people around you that just let you know that you can do it decide what it is you want what is it you want and by the way that's not just a career thing that's why i talk about it in life create success mm-hmm. on your own terms success to me is not equal career right success to me equals life And that's why in the book I talk about life. So figure out the life you want.
0: Well, that's why I think it's so. It's such an interesting thing that human beings do of comparing ourselves to each other. I mean, relativity is one of the most important things in life. Look at like with the isolation that everybody has. I always like say like, what's the worst thing you can do to someone that's in maximum maximum security prison? Put them by themselves. Exactly. So like you're going to take that person away from all the other horrible people and put them by themselves. So we have this natural tendency to compare ourselves. But if you don't know what everybody else is judging themselves on, how can you even compare yourselves to someone else? It's just a ridiculous concept.
1: It is. And just to that point, one of the things that I also like to talk about, Ryan, is decide for yourself what you're willing to be judged on. All right. The world will judge you on everything.
0: <laughs> That's but, a great point.
1: But you you should decide what are you willing to be judged on. And let me just tell a story to to kind of drive this home. My daughter, right? My daughter was born with really thick, curly hair. All right. So fine. What do you do to keep her hair looking nice and neat? You brush it, you comb it, you braid it. Okay. My husband, former football player, six foot two, the whole bit. Did he have big hands? thick? Absolutely. Had he ever braided little girl's hair? No, (laughs) but he needed to learn. It was his daughter too. And I'm not braiding it all the time. So he needed to learn. Now, here's the key. When he first started braiding her hair, right? It's pretty jacked up. I mean, your parts aren't <laughs> straight. Your braids would come undone and all bit. Now, did I go and redo it? No, that would have totally like emasculated him. Right? I mean, but why would I do that? Then he's going to say, fine, you do it, right? I don't need to do it. What did that mean? That meant, uh, that meant I had to be willing to live with her going to school looking kind of messed up <laughs> now. That only lasted for a couple months, right? He got it and he became really good <laughs> yeah, at it. He, he got All embarrassed right?
0: himself, right?
1: He was trying. This wasn't, yeah. i not trying. It's, you know, it's practice. It's like anything else. I've been braiding hair forever. So <laughs> now, did I know that when she went to school, people were probably saying, where is her mother? How could they let her go out of the house looking like this, right? All that stuff. Did I know that was happening? Absolutely. Did it bother me? Nope. I was not willing to be judged on it. It was not part of my framework. Was having her walk out of the house with hair that wasn't perfect, was that going to impact her mental or physical health? No. You're four years old. You don't care. You don't care. Was it going to destroy her future career options? No. Was it going to bring any kind of harm to our family? No. So guess what? Check, check, check. Doesn't matter. All right. To this day, I have a picture on the wall. It was picture day. And it happened to be during this time when Scotty was learning how to do hair. Well, he was trying to braid, make two braids on each side and crisscross it and pin it so it looked like a little crown, okay, which is really cute. Well, by the time picture time came around, one braid had come down from the crown and was starting (laughs) to unravel. The other was across the top. All right, that picture has been on the wall since it was taken because it is the perfect symbol of our life perfect symbol of our life. We focus on what's important and what is key to the success as we defined it, right? Not how the world defines it. So define for yourself what's important and only be willing
0: to be judged on that. Well, and I think, you know, I love how you just, because it tees up to the next question is, you know, someone that's ambitious Male or female, a lot of it is they're rigid or they're not willing to compromise. And there's a whole chapter in your book called Swerve. <laughs> yeah. So, like, how did you deal with the world? You know, looking at your ambition and you know maybe the world judging you for that ex- story that you just described, but yet you're not judging yourself. And then, what does swerving mean? And then, what does rigidity mean? And how does that all that whole uh, concept line into your your thought process?
1: Yeah. So there's a whole section called Swerve because. You can have the goals, which, by the way, you should keep no matter what. You can have plans, but plans don't always go according to what you expected. And that's okay. When you end up with a roadblock or a bump in the road or something, you just swerve. You know, if you're driving and you come to a block in the road, do you stop, park the car, and just wait until somebody moves it? No. Do you go home because, oh, you guess you can't get there? No. You pull up GPS and you figure out, okay, what's another way to get there, right? You take a side road, you turn, you do. Well, guess what? Life is the same way. You might have a path in mind, but things are going to happen. They always do. So you have to swerve, figure out a way around it, array over it, under it, get some help and push through it, whatever it might be. But no, plans are not rigid. I believe goals should be, if you have a goal and it's really what you want to do, then keep the goal. Just figure out a different way to get there.
0: Because you know where you're going. in that GPS example with the car, like you're going somewhere. And if you know where you're going, you probably will just stop and park because you're waiting for someone else to show up and give you the tools necessary.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's why it's so important when you're actually putting a plan in place. You need to have some timelines associated with with it. Because so many times I hear people in their pick an age, 38, 45, 52. You know, I'm just not where I thought I would be. Why not? Well, because time slips, slides away. You know, you're doing something, hey, it's comfortable, it feels good, right? You're getting paid, okay, fine. Versus realizing that, you know, if I'm really gonna achieve what I'm trying to achieve, I should only be doing this for like two, three years, not for like six, seven years, Mm -hmm. right? So it's important to have timelines when you're doing these things that you know, are you on track or are you not on track? So that you don't wake up and say, gosh, I'm just not where I thought I would be.
0: So like I'm I'm super curious Shelly like and you think about all of the natural tendencies that are against us trying to accomplish what you're talking about and then you grew up at like in a business culture that it was not very conducive for you to rise to the top. So what was it like? I'm just mean, like, I want everybody on the show to, to really hear from you. Like, what was it like when the, the narrative is so against you? So it's not only just the normal human being issues, but it's the fact that the culture is swimming the other direction. And what was it like?
1: You know, um, before I tell you what it was like, let me just tell you one more story. So that you understand the context of how I approach those things. Mm hmm. I mean, I talked about the 60s and things being really tough and bad. And so I'd come home, you know, and something happened to me. People didn't treat me right. I didn't get an opportunity. Something happened, right? And you come home as a kid and you say, mom, mom, such and such, so and so, blah, blah, blah. It's not fair, right? We can all all see that in our kids, Mm -hmm. right? And we did it too. It's not fair. Well, instead of giving me the hug, it's like, oh, it's okay. You know, next time, blah, blah. Mama just look at me and say, you're right, Shelly. It's not fair. Life's Mm -hmm. not fair. What? life's supposed to be fair. If you get one, I get one. What do you mean? All right. But my point is her message and my parents' message is really life isn't fair. That's just the way it is. It's not fair for a lot of people. So you have to figure out how, what you're going to do about it. Okay. And then the next message was, but whatever you do, don't let them win. And what she meant by don't let them win is don't let people impact how you feel. If people impact how you feel, they've won. So don't let them win. Now, easier said than done. But what it did for me is a couple things. One, it was, all right, I'm not going to let them win. So I've got to figure out what to do about it. So like when I started with IBM, here I am, I'm in sales. And by the way, there weren't many women in sales in IBM back then, and forget black females, (sighs) So here I am, IBM, and they've given me a customer called the Southland Corporation. Southland owns the 7-Eleven stores. All right. So retail, they were big. They were privately Mm -hmm. owned at the time. And I walk in. Well, it's all white. There is one woman in the entire IT organization that's in management. The men are in boots and suits and cowboy boots. And everybody's calling me honey and sweet pea and little thing and blah, blah, blah. Right. And I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to be successful here? When if I can't even get respect, right, don't let them win. So I had to figure out a strategy for having them take me seriously. And and I talk about that in the book. But all the way through my career, I've just tried to reframe things. Instead of accepting it, just reframe it. I mean, even to this day, Ryan, I'll have people say things like, um, oh, you're on the Verizon board. Oh, it's great that they focus on diversity. What do you think they're trying to tell me? Yeah. All right. Now I could take that as they don't think I belong here. Right. But I don't. I reframe it. I'm like, you poor person in my mind, you poor person, you are so insecure that the only way that you feel good about the fact that I'm in the seat and you're not is to make me feel bad about being in the seat. Totally. Right. Just reframe it. So those are kind of the tools that I've used as I've gone through my career. Because trust me, if I collected all the slights and all of the bias and all the everything else that came my way, I wouldn't be able to move. It would be so heavy. So we have to figure out how to reframe and how to support ourselves right in this piece. So don't let them win. Nobody knows you better than you know you. So do not let them judge you. They
0: don't know you. What did you do like like in order to continue to believe that because I, I I totally agree with you but it's also difficult when you're hearing that from real people in real circumstances and then the voice in your head is also quite, yep. the, quite exactly the persuasive you, person too. exactly
1: you can't do it you can't do it I'm, I'm gonna go back to my cheerleaders I'm telling you cheerleaders are really important my mom and dad were one of my first cheerleaders right my husband was a key cheerleader for me But I had other cheerleaders all along the way who were there to remind me how, you know, that I am capable. I am good. Remember what you've done. Because when that voice, when that imposter syndrome voice is talking to you, it is so loud that you cannot think or remember anything that you've actually done or accomplished to this point. All you think about is, oh my God, they're going to figure out that I really don't know what I'm doing. Oh my God, right? I don't really belong in this room. Oh my God. I mean, that's all that you hear. So you need somebody on the outside that's got that megaphone that is reminding you oh, Shelly, you will absolutely figure it out. You always do right. That will remind you, look at all the things you've already done. Look what you've already overcome. I needed that. If I hadn't had that, I don't know that I would have achieved Mm -hmm. all the things that I've achieved. So, you know, if you don't have a cheerleader in your life, go find one. You point them. You say, listen, I heard Shelly. She told me I need a cheerleader. You're it. (laughs) So from now on, if I ever act like I don't know what I'm doing or I'm not going to take a job or I'm afraid of taking a risk or whatever it might be, you need to snap me out of it. And make sure that I do.
0: And <laughs> I love it when we don't have the, a time for it. But there's a whole section in the book about how you talk about adopting mentors, and you don't even tell yeah. them. And there's it's like, <laughs> and I was like, man, can I relate to that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just gonna keep bugging you until you just realize that I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, because I, I, I know we're getting short on time here, is the what now that you've become the CEO and you've you've had your very successful um, business career, what is stage two, and how have you set it up? your goals this time? And how are you judging success for yourself right now?
1: Mm, So phase two was something I started planning right after getting the CEO job. I'm sure (laughs) your (laughs) shock shoe. So I decided that I wanted to be able to serve on boards, advise companies. I wanted to write this book that I did. And I wanted to spend a good chunk of my time on impact and inspiration for the next generation coming through. So That's basically what I'm doing. And it worked, it was a pretty easy transition because I'd been planning for it. You know, I I knew that I'd done the research, so serving on boards, what do boards want? First thing they want is board experience. So I said, okay, I need to get a board like now. And I did, 42, I got on my first public board. And that way, by the way, I came time for phase two, I had plenty of board experience so that it then became easier, right? To get on other boards. Um, advise companies. Well, by being a CEO and by establishing a strong reputation and making an impact in a number of areas, people do want me to help, right? And support in terms of what's happening. So you can plan for things and that way it makes it easier, right? Mm -hmm. You improve your odds to make it easier for you then to do it later on versus waking up and saying, okay, I'm ready for phase two. Now, how do I do this? Mm -hmm. Right? It's much harder, takes longer.
0: There's a beautiful book called uh, "The Halftime," and well, it's the Halftime Institute. It's called Halftime, and they talk about like you know that S curve for companies mm-hmm. and doing that stuff while you're in transition phases. It's a it's a great um, re- reference point. Yep. So I'm curious it, it, to, as we're wrapping up, Shelley. Like describe to you know you talked about impact is the the thing that you're judging yourself on now. Describe to me the way the world is right now as you see it, and when you say, "Hey, we're on track." with the impact that you want and describe the, the way you want the world to be as, uh, as you leave your legacy.
1: Mm. I want more people to take control of their lives, to manage their careers, to decide what they want for their life and then go after it intentionally. I want more people to be able to achieve their aspirations because frankly, it, it really bothers me that so many people aren't able to do it because they don't know how, or not sure in terms of the tax to take or how to make it work. So I'm trying to share, trying to talk to share some tips, tools, things that worked for me that others might be able to learn from to help them be able to do that too.
0: I love it, and I'll I'll share one small story to wrap us up. like my so my wife and I were um, skiing the other day, and we we're sitting there chatting. We're we're life planners like you and Scotty, and. I, like we were talking about, what do we want for kids? I just said, I just want my kids to know why they're doing what they're doing so they can be happy instead of just like waking up one day going, Hmm, not the spot I wish it was in. I'm like, if they just know why they're doing, it, I don't care what they do. I just want them to know why they're doing it. So they don't have any regrets. It's just mm-hmm. so fascinating to me how few people know why they're doing what they're doing. Mhm. What is the best place to find your book, to find all the tips and tricks and all the things you're doing these days?
1: Oh, come to Shelly, S-H-E-L-L-Y-E, spelled a little differently, Shelly.com.
0: I love it. Shelly, thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Shelly. I learned a lot from listening to her book and interviewing her, and I can't believe how important it is to clarify that vision of what you want from your life, what you want from your business, and build your strategies to go get there. The hard choices that we all have to make, they're already difficult, right? Whatever challenges life throws at you, they're going to be difficult, But if you don't have something that is big and above and beyond you and your circumstances, it's going to be very difficult to overcome those challenges and get right back on your feet to keep driving towards that vision if the vision's not clear. I think about all of the hard things that Shelly had to deal with and how much more difficult they would have been if Shelly wouldn't have been unapologetically ambitious with the vision she had and the steps she was taking to go get it. I also think this is absolutely relevant to you and your life and your business. If you can clarify what you want from your life and your business, it becomes even clearer what path you're going to need to take in order to go get it. And then as you deal with challenges and obstacles, you're going to understand how to put them in context and weigh them against your long-term goals. I don't know how people go through life and wake up every day and get passionate if they don't have an awesome vision and goal that they're marching towards. So my couple big takeaways is clarify your vision, clarify the path to go get that vision and accomplish it. And if the path to go get that vision is unclear, don't forget to check out the Intentional Growth Online Training. Go to arcona.io. Otherwise, I hope you go check out Shelly's book and start thinking about what do you want from your business and your life long-term and how are you gonna go get it. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.